John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed Omnibus, Addenda, Volume 38, Entry 1376.MT0715, Certificate Number 53773, Up With People. Have you ever seen Black Sunday? Is it a football movie? Well, kind of. Crazed Goodyear blimp. Oh yeah, there's a sniper. Super Bowl. Yeah, I have seen that. It's crazy that they actually got Goodyear to cooperate with a movie where a crazed Goodyear blimp pilot wants to blow up the Super Bowl. Yeah, they let them use a Goodyear blimp that says Goodyear right on it. I was kind of digging into how on earth that happened, and it turns out first of all they insisted that he he be a contractor. Uh huh. (laughs) He doesn't not represent the good the Goodyear Tire Company as a whole does not endorse the blowing up of the Super Bowl. Right. This was just a guy on on uh, retainer. Exactly. And second, I think the the movie company basically told them, look, we're just gonna use a silvery blimp anyway, and everyone's gonna assume it's the Goodyear blimp. So you might as well have your name on help it. us out and get you know, have I, script input and stuff. I don't remember turning against the Goodyear company when I saw it. <laughs> I, I immediately went out and changed my tires yeah. the second I saw that. To BF Goodrich. Michael pointed out, a listener named Michael pointed out that uh, Black Sunday was actually filmed at a Super Bowl to get the production value you could not get by not shooting at a Super Bowl. And because they filmed it at Super Bowl 10 in 1976, you can actually see Up With People in the movie singing the national anthem. How cool. They, that's probably, I have to assume it's their first and last action thriller appearance. I mean. They're on TV a lot. I'm, I'm kind of going through action movies on my head and I'm like, is Up With People in The Terminator? No. They're not. Is Up With People in Top Gun Maverick? No. They are not. I, I, I can't think of another one. But maybe Up With People singing a song, maybe the song was used in a film? This seems like something we could discover if we ever looked at IMDb. I bet you look at IMDb more than I do. I look at IMDb at least once a day. Wow. Let's see. Do, does Up With People have an IMDb entry? Oh, they might not because that's not how IMDb works. The reason I don't look at IMDb is that I don't understand how it works. They are listed on the soundtrack of four movies, one of which is Black Sunday. 
they are also on the soundtrack of. Oh, that's funny. They're on the that Lakers um, miniseries on HBO. Mm-hmm. I don't know which episode, but they're also in the 2008 movie Wieners. Sure. In which um, they, they use their famous song Wieners. It's a it's a Kenan Thompson, Jenny McCarthy uh, road trip thing. Oh, they're in an Oscar we- uh, Meyer Wiener type. The, the buddies are in some Oscar Mayer Wiener-type Wienermobile and comedy ensues. A friend of mine uh, two days ago was in Minnesota driving in a snowstorm and sent me a picture of the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile driving on a freeway in a snowstorm taken out of the out of the driver's side window of his car as he went screaming past it on the right. The Wienermobile had places to be. Yeah. It looks like the road trip friends in this movie that I've never heard of might be Kenan Thompson... Zachary Levi of now Shazam fame, and Fran Krantz, a.k.a. the stoner from Cabin in the Woods, who just wrote and directed an amazing school shooting movie I just saw. Fran Krantz can't dance. Fran Krantz can't dance but can direct. Uh, And their song, Up With People's song, The Happy Song, is on the soundtrack. 2010's The Extra Man, uh, which appears to be a... Kevin Klein, Paul Dano, indie, for some reason has up with people's Is There a Reason Why on the soundtrack? I feel like Paul Dano brings out a certain kind of weird up with people vibe in his movies. Like Kevin Klein is there to try to turn Paul Dano into a real little boy, and I bet it doesn't work. I bet he still raises Spielberg all weird. There's a few more. They're in Cool It... They're on an episode of F is for Family. So they're just raking in those residual dollars. I mean, they, it, after Black Sunday, if IMDb is exhaustive, there's a 30-year gap where no one used up with people. And then Wieners broke the embargo in 2008, and now they are their 70s variety show sound is heard far and wide. Yeah, people are looking for something that's just a little treacly, a little strange. Typical. Up with no, Nobody sounds like up with people. Entry... 810.LK2129. Certificate number 46162. Mother Trees. We heard from the Washington uh, Department of Natural Resources here in the person of its, uh, one of its foresters, a listener named Hollis. Uh, but he has a professional forestry take on. He enjoyed the uh, entry. Well, that's good. And I think at one point we were bemoaning the clear cuts. Right, as we do here in the Northwest. You often see in the Northwest. And he says, actually, there can be a scientific basis for clear-cutting. Let me guess. It's forest fires. Exactly. Ah. that's It's a closer representation of the kind of tree thinning renewal that would naturally happen here. But forest fires deposit all that burnt wood on the ground. That is correct. Um. But I guess Weyerhaeuser and Washington State Forestry just sprinkle fertilizer from a helicopter? I'm sure it's exactly like what nature would do. They uh, Instead of nurse logs, they uh, drop a picture of a nurse on a log <laughs> out of a helicopter. I guess you manage eastern hardwoods, he says, by selectively logging that thin stuff out, and then there's room for young trees. But when you try that with Douglas firs, you do not get young Douglas firs. In the little interstices, you just get a bunch of salmonberry and other kinds of ground cover. And you know, uh, on this show, we're famously pro delicious salmon berries. Yeah, salmon berries and uh, and 
I never called Oregon them grape. I never called them the berry that tasted most like tomatoes. I think it's the berry that tastes not at all like raspberries. <laughs> um, not, not like less. Not like unripe raspberries. So why do fir trees not grow up in the in the air in the in the in between? I, I guess they just need a lot of sunlight. They, oh. they need like a half acre opening Ooh. to mature. Um, you're, okay. you're not unlike your mom. Yeah. Ha- yeah, ha- at least a half acre. It's rude. Uh, clear cuts mimic our natural stand initiation events, massive wildfires. But he then says, you know, in theory, you would actually leave large complex trees as a seed source and habitat as required by law, but frequently they're not well distributed, which means they don't work. So I guess even with clear cuts, there are Washington state laws saying you have to leave the maturest trees. Yeah, you, you can but see yeah. them driving <laughs> Through. And it turns out the squirrels are not like, yes, they yeah. left one. <laughs> it's so funny. It's not ideal. One giant tree sitting on a hilltop. But this is good. This is good for you. If John ever wants free tree or forest advice. Which I do. And I know you have some forestry issues in your life. It would be my pleasure. I live just north of Seattle and work in our state's small forest landowner office. Cool. Thank you, Hollis. Entry 1352.DE1223. Certificate number eight. Five seven three. Twilight. For some reason, multiple listeners were assuming that the turns out of the Twilight Show would be that the Twilight Show fan community produced so much fan fiction about Bella and Edward, some of it naughty fan fiction, that it later spawned the Fifty whole, Shades of Grey oh, series. I was going to say uh, a sub a sub a species of porn movie, but basically. I was yes, right. You were exactly right. Did you watch Fifty Shades of Grey? No. Was it? It's titillating, right? Is it? Not, does, to, not to me. Oh, right. Because I didn't watch it. You didn't watch. You didn't read the book either, or watch the book. It's just kind of light bondage for moms. It's like it, I, I'm here. Yeah, I'm here for you, that. You're here for the LBFM <laughs> for sure. I don't know that one. Did we say? Anything that sounded like light bondage for moms is what activates Alexa now. Do you have your Do you have your Alexa <laughs> to turn on when you say light bondage? For if moms? I could have it turn on to things that I that I say instead of just Alexa and Echo, yeah, I would have it say light bondage for moms. I mean, sadly, it's not the only one here turning on when you say that. Mm. the uh, The Fifty Shades of Grey books are kind of a, what legitimization of that kind of um, not particularly artsy erotica because they use big words or why does it legitimize it i think just because it was i don't know how it got over the threshold but once it became a phenomenon then people who would never who would never buy some other kind of naughty nymphos number 28 book at the bookstore would hmm, you buy seem to know a lot about the naughty nymphos series didn't didn't i sell that that was a hypothetical name i was coming no. up with i was really working hard to yeah. give that impression <laughs> um my uh, so as i said uh, uh to you earlier i just watched the twilight series or no i'm sorry not series the movie the one movie and in fact the thing you said to me earlier is again not going to be heard until Next month, sure, on Omnibus. sure. That's part of the the joy of giving to our Patreon and being able to listen to these little previews. But uh, my sense of it was that there was uh, no sex and very little even touching. Yes, it was all forbidden fruit, and that's the. I think that's a lot of the appeal of the show for teens is that it's it's so 
chased. They can, you know, Edward would bite her head off if they were to ever right. start necking in her pickup. Just like real sex. So that's what you that's can't what, risk it. That's what a lot of teenagers think. Don't risk it. Yeah. Um, whereas, so you can see why people would want an outlet to actually oh. describe in greater detail what might go on after the Twilight narrator looks away. And it would be um, that Edward would spank her with a... Yeah, he would be a rich Seattle uh, business guy. Oh, is Fifty with, Shades of Grey set in Seattle? Yes. Oh. And, of course, you and I know a ton of a ton of tech millionaires here with a spanking room. Everybody's got one. Why have I not familiarized myself with this genre enough to then offer a Fifty Shades of Grey tour yes. in, of Seattle to... To the moms. To moms that have come to Seattle for precisely that reason. I guess it started... So what became Fifty Shades of Grey was a 500-page BDSM Twilight fanfic called Master of the Universe, Whoa. published by one Snow Queen's Ice Dragon on, a, on an internet forum. And uh, Sam, who uh, was w- one of the correspondents who pointed this out, sent us helpful links showing us which characters from Twilight turned into which Fifty Shades of Grey characters. Um, The publisher of Fifty Shades of Grey defending it as an original work, presumably for legal reasons. Uh And a PDF of the original uh, fanfic story that was later de-Twilighted to become Fifty Shades of Grey. What do you have to put into a screenplay to de-Twilight it? Is it some kind of tincture? You just have to get, yeah, get rid of the sparkle mm-hmm. on the vampires. You have to add lines like, uh, he was not sparkling at all. Come into my spanking room, he said. So what? looking at some pictures of Fifty Shades of Grey on the internet, a thing I've never done. Pictures of what? Well, of the of things from the movie. Oh, okay. I have to say that I find the lead actress very appealing. She has a kind of look. Well, you know she has an omnibus connection. Oh, she does? Yes. What is the omnibus connection? Uh, she used to go out with me in high school. No. No, it is not. Dakota Johnson is the daughter of... Uh, oh, Don Johnson and Melanie Griffith. Yes. Is that the, is this making, the same person? Making her the granddaughter of Tippi Hedren of uh, oh. Dreaming Up Vietnamese Nail Salon fame. And, of course. And uh, putting her head in a lion's mouth or something. So so I remember uh, uh, the child of those two uh, semi-famous actors... Uh, when she was a little child, and I have no, I had no idea that she'd grown up to be this, uh, this sort of uh, John Roderick type. Although obviously not age appropriate, but she has the bangs, she has the wolf eyes. But is this what it takes? Bangs and wolf eyes. Bangs and wolf eyes. Hope listeners are taking note. But uh, what I'm discovering here is that the lead actor does not resemble me in the slightest. So it would be hard for me to when you think about like. Mom bondage isn't. I always assumed that he was like a silver fox. That he was a little bit of a like a one of those guys from the contemporary catalogs. You know, you open a catalog now, and there's always some gray bearded guy who's yes. wearing a rustic sweater. I always assumed it was that, but no, this guy just looks. No, like, it turns out what you want is a hot ripped thirty year old. Yeah, hot ripped thirty year old. Come on. Yeah, we hate them. Yeah, stop being so ageist. Who would ever be us. attracted to a hot ripped thirty year old? Yeah, us. Uh, what kind of freak likes that? Sort of uh, gray bearded uh, silver foxes is who you need. Entry seven hundred two dot L A zero four one seven. Certificate number three five nine one six. The last Soviet citizen. I think I forwarded you this note from Brett because we talked a lot about the Salyut 
space stations, yes. the, the pre-Skylab era Soviet uh, first ever orbital space stations, without which you would not have Mir or the ISS, uh, because he pointed out that they had built uh, defensive weaponry on the Salyut stations. Did you know this? Like crossbows and, and trebuchets? What? Now, now, that's what Russians would normally use on Earth. But in space, in fact, they put... Uh, what? Like ca- cannons on there. What? Like it's actual artillery. If you fired a cannon from a space station, wouldn't it immediately <laughs> propel the station? Go in the other direction? The direction? I'm guessing it has to have one of those recoil things that comes out the other side in exact equal and opposite proportion. But also, wouldn't you need oxygen to... Use a gunpowder base. Well, this is what I want you to look gun? into: the R23M Kartek 14.5 millimeter rapid cannon. Um, what Brett points out is that it was rigidly mounted, which means if you want to fire anything, you have to turn the whole station, which doesn't seem ideal. Maybe you turn the station by firing the gun, and then as you as as your velocity increases and you sweep past the target, you're just firing bullets in every direction. But those bullets would continue forever. Uh, well, they burned up in the atmosphere. The 20 shells it fired, and it's one and only test right before it was returned to uh, the atmosphere. The shells, it fired 20 shells at nothing, and then those burned up in the atmosphere. Uh, I don't really it know. It sounds like fired 20 shells at the Earth. Yeah. The first time the Earth has been attacked. Soviets declare war. The day the Earth stood still. Yeah, I'm kind of curious to m- myself as to how the um, how the recoil, etc., worked. Did it fire two equal projectiles in opposite directions? So you shoot one at your enemy and hopefully one the other way. hopefully don't hit a dude behind you. Or you turn the you turn the uh, the motor on in exact opposite proportion to the power was, of the bullet. It was the kind of thing that nobody knew about at the time, and it was only when stuff got declassified. Here's a popular mechanics article from 2015. They were worried about American space stations sneaking up on them like Moonraker. Exactly. They saw Moonraker and they were like, what if Roger Moore started firing missiles at us and then, or lasers? Mm-hmm. And then Jaws uh, turns mm-hmm. the tables and decides to join up with 007? Mm-hmm. That would be the worst. The, it was such a surprise to us at the time. Here's what happens. The station itself has to fire its engines in the opposite direction at the same time as the Solute fires. Like I expected. That's Is that what you would have done? Well, that's what I said uh, one and a half minutes ago. Well, so that's your plan to when you fire, when you fire missiles at the Earth. Well, no, my plan would be that Michael Lonsdale would <laughs> be there speaking in his extremely appealing French accent. R.I.P. Michael Lonsdale. Clint actually wrote in an answer to a question we had. I can't remember how this came up, but we were talking about why eyesight gets worse in space. Oh, I think we were talking about all the different kinds of effects that microgravity has on people and how. You know, they might be an insuperable obstacle to actual space colonization. Um, I think my eyesight could only improve because nothing's going to make it worse. Well, we should shoot you into space for various reasons. Clint actually is an ophthalmic photographer whose boss worked with NASA on this very issue. Is there anything, that I know. We, any topic we can do where there isn't some like once one in 10 million expert listening to the show? Uh, we should try to think of one. I guess it's a credit to the to the futurelings. It is. They're a, a high caliber of uh, of expert. He says one contributing cause is actually microgravity will change the shape of your uh, eye. Right. You know, it'll it'll elongate it. You know, it's not being pushed down by gravity, so your eye gets taller in and out. 
and that can lead to myopia. And in fact, there have been tests on astronauts where they do a kind of ophthalmological imaging on the retina to see what has because they all changed. have. 30-20 eyesight or something, right? And astronauts. Before they get to space, they do. Then who knows what's happening? They're not putting on a little pince-nez like you. Right. And uh, the most substantive response we got to this um, episode was from someone named Stevens. Sorry, someone named Stephen, who is trying to figure out why you say Soviet. And I, I'll, he says, I'll bet John doesn't say the unlighted slates. The unlighted slates. Should we start doing that? I guess it's an equal time argument. If you're going to add, if you're going to an extra L to the Soviet Union, and we actually won the Cold War, shouldn't we get two extra supernumerary L's? As a as a uh, a resident of the unlighted slates, (laughs) America, um, I I think we'll only pronounce it that way from here on out. Here's my here's my take. Yeah. The Soviets should get the L because they got the L. Sure, they did get the L in the Cold War. So we should be the you sh- whited <laughs> sweets. That's exactly right. He also wished us a nice Thanksgiving. Thank you, Stephen. It's now become a shibboleth on the on the uh, Facebook page. People that come in and say, "Why do they pronounce the L in Soviet?" Because you, of course, do it now too, unconsciously. I probably do. I'm going to do it on Jeopardy and get fired. Um, uh, people then, the first thing they say is, welcome. Welcome to the group. Oh, they do? I thought you were going to say they said something mean. No, it's usually something nice like, welcome, stranger. And it's, you know, it's it's frustrating when people are like, but I've listened to 250 episodes. Maybe they just noticed. Yeah, they just noticed. Because it's the natural pronunciation. They just had a bunch of earwax removed. Soviet Union. And they're like, wait, is he saying Soviet all this time? (laughs) Entry 674.NA0108. Certificate number 33180. The Johnstown Flood. Two notes I enjoyed here. One was from Michael, who told a story we did not tell about Morley's dog. Morley's dog. A statue of a dog which sat in a Johnstown, Pennsylvania park for decades, and a whole legend grew up around how uh, Morley's dog had uh, been a hero of the flood. It's true that the dog statue uh, did date back to the era of the flood. Cambria Iron Executive James Morley kept it as a lawn statue, um, and after the flood it was somehow recovered and returned to him and eventually donated to the city. So there's this whole legend about Morley's dog. Saving a bunch sa- of people. Or- it's actually in the movie Slapshot, this uh, story, which uh, I don't recall this part of Slapshot, but okay. Um, it saved a child or something during the flood. Uh, in fact, there is no such dog. It was just a lawn ornament. So it didn't that- even represent a real dog no, as just, a lawn ornament. He just got it out of a catalog and then when it started falling apart, this zinc statue started falling apart. It's kind of a cheap statue. He, he, someone, some owner at some point decided to fix it by filling it with concrete, which it turns out does more harm than good. Don't just, folks, if you have a statue at home that's not If you have up a to spec, zinc statue at home. Probably any statue. Don't fill it with concrete. Okay. It's just a risky, risky maneuver. And then the zinc wore away and now it's a weird concrete I guess concrete expands with the weather in a way that zinc does not. Oh, so, so the dogs the, the dogs off. started to bulge and crack, uh, and but it's by this time it had become a beloved symbol of the city park where it was kept. 
So that there's a contribution going on. If anybody would like to help restore Morley's, Morley's dog. dog, there are some online campaigns. Well, this is a news article from 2011, so maybe there isn't. It's hard to imagine that um, that there would be like a uh, in America any kind of crazy story originating from just something dumb that then becomes a necessary part of a community. Looking at Morley's dog, it looks like a looks like a. It does not look made of concrete. Is it still painted? The one I saw was actually like in painted like in dog colors. Well, painted like in somebody, dog colors. Like somebody got a big zinc dog and painted it like a D&D figurine. Also kind of painted like Bambi. I mean, if I saw it, <laughs> I would say, what dog is colored like Bambi? But yeah, there are two kinds. There's the painted one and then there's the unpainted one. Well, neither one saved a single life. During the flood. In fact, it probably could have killed a kid. His giant zinc statue flying at your head. Yeah. Morley's dog probably took out three to four Johnstonites and did not save anyone. We also heard from Travis, who's in his entirety, his comment on that episode was, I lived in Johnstown right after college. It has zero redeeming qualities. (laughs) Oh, wow. He's pro-flood. Travis. Yeah. Our apologies to all the residents of Johnstown who this is are not our take. very into Morley's dog. and This is from Travis. Literally zero, he can't think of a single nice thing, a single reason why your town should not once again be wiped from the face of the earth. Is there a Cracker Barrel? It's not in... Is there uh, a Waffle House? No, it's, it's not too in far wa- north. Waffle House territory. Too far north. I bet you there's a, uh, a White Castle, right? Any place where the White Castle has one redeeming quality. Entry 1016.LK1202. Certificate number 21137. The Quadro Tracker. You want subject area experts? You get subject <laughs> area experts. Are most of them from law enforcement, uh, current or, or uh, active military, or are they psychologists? Well, Dorian on Facebook seemed to take what is probably not the pro-law enforcement take, which is many of the customers of these uh, fraudulent trackers, if you'll recall, which claim to be able to detect anything, but actually were just, what, an, it was, what was it, an ant taped to a 3 by 5 card or something? <laughs> Basically glued to a toothbrush. How is this possible? Is he, say, is he about to say that most of them just bought them to reinforce their pre-existing stereotypes? Ding, ding, ding. Well, yeah. that they were, in fact, buying probable cause. Right, right, right. That you're like, hey, I got a reading on this thing that we got issued, and now I can go through this guy's trunk, and maybe he's got weed. Exactly. Um, because, and it's that's not, I don't want to say every cop does that, but it's certainly not a crazy thing to imagine. It happens all the time with um, canine units, I think, yeah. where you can just point to the, in court, you can later say, you're on. Well, the dog The signals. dog was doing a thing, so I had to... Yeah, it's a stop and frisk except the Ohio State Patrol instead of New York beat cops. Exactly. Um, Then, so I wouldn't say, I thought that was an interesting take and one I had not considered during the show. We didn't say it in the show? I mean, but we kind of danced around it, that it was being used. You didn't want to get pulled over, so you didn't say it. Well, once it was debunked, there were still lots of police departments that were like, no, 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 we're going to keep using it because it really, you know, whether it works or not, it's a great deterrent. So it seems kind of like same family. Harold seems to have National Guard experience. He uh, wrote to us specifically about my question about um, those long sticks with mirrors on them that used to look under cars right. in, in movies for car bombs. Uh, he can confirm that the National Guard still uses them to inspect vehicles on their way into bases. But, and this is the part I'm not sure I follow, so maybe you can help me. It seems like it's only large commercial vehicles you can actually see under by getting under the ground and looking. Right. 
So wait, if you can get under the ground and look, why would you bother with the sticks and the mirrors? Uh, I don't think if you put a stick and a mirror under a normal car, you would only be able to see right under the rocker panel. You couldn't actually push it all the way under. Well, that's what Harold says. If you're looking to smuggle your embarrassing items on base, tape them under a car. Basically, he's giving us anarchist cookbook kind of advice about how to sneak stuff onto army bases. But the thing about sneaking stuff on army bases is who... It's pretty easy to you do. Just put it in your pocket. It's not like they stop you and frisk you. They're not using a quadro tracker on you. I wanted to answer the question, what is contraband on a U.S. Army base? And what that brings me to, if you Google it, is um, the list of things you cannot send your kid while they're in basic. And it's basically everything. Yeah, right. Like, do not send mouthwash. Do not send playing cards. Do not send any, any out, outside reading material that's not a Bible. Wow. I mean, basically... Socks? Can you send them warm socks? You cannot pile! <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Uh, How are you going to be born again hard if you have exactly. warm socks? I think the idea is you wear their crappy socks because that's just part of the the mind alteration that's happening in basic. I mean, you're probably not supposed to send your kid a sheet of acid, even if they're out of basic training. Um, I mean, even if they're not in the military, you should not be sending your kid a sheet of acid. I'll, I'll go so far as right. to say. Right. Maybe that's just my take on parenting. It would be super easy to smuggle a sheet of acid really literally anywhere. Uh, one thing that came up in the show, I, I believe, is that um, there was a new burst of these in the war on, or at least, you know, a lot of the customers for these items were war on terror era. Right. Not just the Quadra Tracker, but maybe a couple selling similar items in Britain and marketing them to Iraqi and Afghani police. And never in my wildest dreams did I think I would hear from uh, an, a, a senior a DOD civilian senior advisory to Iraq's federal police, their equivalent of the FBI. But in fact, we did. Michael wants us to know that he spent a year doing that as a volunteer assignment. I guess he's presumably law enforcement in real life. Sorry for the thing we said about probable cause. And spent a year volunteering. With, with the with, Afghani with, police. With Iraq's FBI. Oh, Iraq's FBI. But his advisory team started seeing their FBI using the ADE 651 magic wand, the, the British fake catalog equivalent. Wow. Just to, you know, vehicles to see if they had explosives or, or whatever. Um, he says he spent years trying to, or he spent his full tour there trying to convey to them there was nothing magical about them, that in fact their use would put lives at risk. He actually sent us a picture of him with the commander of the federal police, basically Iraq's J. Edgar Hoover here, pictured with our listener Michael, and he assured us he would look into it, but when he left Iraq a few months later, he was still seeing the magic wands in use at all the checkbooks. Or, sorry, all the checkpoints. Oh, he's not law enforcement. He's Army. He was the director of the Army Criminal Investigation. I hope I can out him. Director of the Army Criminal Investigation Command's Computer Crime Investigative Unit. Wow. We heard from that NASA. I said computer. Mm, I, shouldn't have, I should never have said computer. Don't ever say computer. She's still talking. What does she want? Leave us alone. But we heard from the NASA cop the other day who spent a lot of his career tracking down uh, uh, fake... Yeah, meteorites. Fake, yeah, fake um, Columbia and Challenger bits, it seemed like. And oh. and just in... I think most of his day was internal embezzlement. A lot of uh, a lot of government police listened to the show. Who, po- who polices the policemen? Our listeners. Go. That's right. Thank Futurelings. You, thank you for your service, Michael. That, that, I'm sorry that the Iraqi uh, federal police... 
wouldn't believe you on dowsing. It's so incredible that all these things are real. I see the Sentinelese come up in the in the newspaper now all the time. People uh, love the Sentinelese. Yeah. Did we manifest them? Did they not exist before we did a show on them? Boy, I can't, you know, it's the Bader-Meinhof syndrome. I can't know for sure. I mean, one thing you can be sure of is they're not seeing it. Entry 1042.LV1104. Certificate number 45334. The Red Ghost. The Red Ghost was a camel wandering the west. Spooky camel. Yeah, but also kind of a... With a dead guy on Kind of a pathetic figure because, you know, the Red Ghost didn't sign up for any of that. Right. Um, Two different listeners wanted us to know that their source of information about the cavalry's experimentation with camels was something I had never heard of. Uh, The... Boy Scouts. I had never heard of the Boy Scouts. Can you tell me more? No, the, uh, I want to get the year on this right. The 1976 Western comedy film Humps. Humps. No, no, no. Humps. Humps. With an A-W, not not clear why. Humps. And then an exclamation point. Did it star uh, Tim Conway and... uh... It starred Tim Conway equivalents. You got your Denver Pile and your Slim Pickens. Okay. All so, right. So we're definitely getting there as far as kind of Apple Dumpling Gang level yep. 70s actors. The lead is one... Gregory Peck. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the lead is Lawrence or Lawrence Olivier. <laughs> the lead is James Hampton, who um, I guess his uh, qualifications to play a cavalry officer in the West are because he was the hapless bugler on F Troop. Oh, sure. In the... Uh, in the 60s. But how is he ever going to be uh, billed over Slim Pickens? Exactly. It's not fair. It's not fair that he and uh, another... Uh, uh, why was I going to mention this guy? There was something funny on this guy's resume. Christopher Connolly. I remember James Hampton being a kind of mid-70s like game show guest and celebrity roast attendee, don't you? Uh, I, he looks familiar to me and I could not, in none of his Love Boat episodes or whatever actually rang a bell. Oh, this is what it was. Christopher Connolly, um, a Peyton Place actor who was the Ryan O'Neill equivalent on the TV version of Paper Moon. Okay. Which is only funny because they replaced Tatum O'Neill with, it's the only, it's, it's one of the, well, this has happened a few times where a more famous actor who ends up being a more famous actor, replaces the uh, movie star in the right. TV version. They replaced him O'Neill with, you got any guesses? Alan Alda. <laughs> yes. Jodie Foster. They replaced Tatum O'Neill with Jodie Foster. Turned out to be an upgrade, but in yeah. 1973 or 1974, that you know. That wouldn't have been true. Tatum O'Neill had an Oscar and Jodie Foster was nobody. She probably hadn't even been in Candleshoe. I don't know. Well, so here's some stuff that you might not know about James Hampton. He was in Teen Wolf. He was in Teen Wolf. Sling Blade. I can't figure this out. The Longest Yard and the China Syndrome. I can't picture him in any of those movies. I mean, he must be a faculty member in Teen Wolf, right? He's, or is he the dad? He's, you know, that's the thing. That's who he would be. He would be the dad or he would be the, he would be the principal or the, uh, he's not, he's never, a. I don't think, a bad guy. The other leading man of Homps is Christopher Connolly guy, the Paper Moon guy. I only remembered from his guest turn on Airwolf. 
Right. If you recall on Airwolf, John Michael Vincent is trying to string fellow Hawk, is using Airwolf because he wants to find his missing MIA brother, Sinjin Hawk. Oh, I don't recall that because I did not watch Airwolf. Well, that was the kind of the MacGuffin of Airwolf. Well, I guess Airwolf was the MacGuffin of Airwolf. But for our hero, he, it's got a POW MIA thing. He wants to find Sinjin Hawk. Right. And Sinjin, as it turns out, would sometimes appear, uh, you'd see him in a couple episodes and they'd just miss each other. And he was always played by Christopher Connolly from Homs. But Homs was uh, brought to you by the force behind the low-budget animal movie star of the 70s, Joe Camp, who dreamed up Benji. Oh, Benji. So fresh from his Benji success, whereby some small mini Hollywood studio suddenly made $50 million from Benji, they let Joe Camp do whatever he wanted. He said, it's going to be Camels of the Old West. I did watch... The heck out of Benji. I've seen Benji and For the Love of Benji, the sequel set in Europe. Oh, I don't know if I saw. No, I did see that. I think Italy. I can't remember where For the Love of Benji is set. I remember. Okay, so. Have you seen Oh Heavenly Dog where Benji plays Chevy Chase? Yes. The only movie, I believe, where Benji plays Chevy Chase. (laughs) I have seen that. Um, Okay, so Homps. 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 He's a brick. Homps. So there's there's a camel. It's the story yeah. of camels coming over to the cowboys. Yeah, and all the people, and it's for comic effect, and all the people seem to be fake, except for as we, I think we mentioned a guy named like Hijab Ali or Wait, somebody. The people are fake. <laughs> yeah, it's CG. <laughs> CGI from nineteen seventy four. They're not historical figures. They're they're claymation. Was this a claymation film? Yeah, Davy. <laughs> no, they are all. Uh, they're not historical figures, except for the the uh, Middle Eastern camel trainer. Oh yeah. Uh, something called Haj Ali or something, whom the uh, Western folk called High Jolly. He appears in Homs, played by an Italian actor. Um, so, but there's a tradition of uh, in the '70s. It was hard to see a Western without a bunch of Italians pretending to be denizens of the frontier. So we, sure. we were used to that at the time. We expected to see Italians out there. We were disappointed when we got to California, and in fact, there were none. There were Italians in California. I'm here to attest. Disagree. Strong disagree. Entry 510.1K0609, certificate number 49729, the Futuro House. Now, we talked about a bunch of these flying saucer-shaped would-be residences of the future. Um, and man, and many on the Facebook page, many people sent in photos of their local Futuro House or, or Futuro House in disrepair. I was surprised at the number of... Uh, different Futuro houses there were. But there can't be that many because we got three notes about the same one. Oh. Uh, I mean, uh, Michael points out that he had seen one in, uh, he had found, he'd used Atlas Obscura to find a few and he, he went to one in Royce City, Texas and he sent us some pictures of them that we will drop onto the Patreon. This one appears to be, the interior has been targeted by local graffiti artists and he's mm. in pretty bad shape. Isn't that what always happens? But even worse, three different uh, listeners, Michael and Justin and Zach, told us about the same Futura house in Frisco, North Carolina. Yeah, well, I mentioned in the it Outer on the Banks. show. Did you talk about this one? Yeah, burned down. This is the one that burned down, and I'm not sure we mentioned this part. There is actually a GoFundMe going on for its renewal, which is not going well. Oh, boo. So if any of you were moved by the story of the Futura house to try to support... Um, their restoration, or in this case, reconstruction, because I think the, I think the North Carolina one is pretty much hashed. 
you can find, look for the Frisco Futuro GoFundMe. An effort is going on to try to get it back up to snuff. And the GoFundMe page has a lot of cool history of that kind of a, that kind of a house. Justin, in fact, blames the fire on a Jewish space laser, which is only, which is a, a funny satirical reference if you remember the internet discourse about, I don't know, Marjorie Taylor Greene or somebody, or maybe maybe it was what uh, uh, Lauren Boebert. I can't remember which one uh, uh, endorsed a theory that um, an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory about. Jewish people having space lasers in orbit. I don't know what they're going to do with them. I mean, maybe make latka, presumably. Listen, I'm out of the business of making any reference to any satirical or ironic references to Jewish space Just, lasers. Justin thinks he can get away with one here, and that's why I'm explaining the reference. It was not, in fact, a space laser that burned the the Futuro, Frisco Futuro house. I think. I hope. We'll never know. Entry 931.RV2015, certificate number 48730, The Phone Book. Lots of responses from The Phone Book, because look, everybody everybody had a phone book, everybody was in The Phone Book. But I saw pictures of contemporary phone books, phone books that continue to come. Yeah, I saw on the Facebook page, uh, somebody uh, said, hey, this just came. Yeah. And it had ads on the front now. The back the back of the phone book ads have become the cover of the phone book. But, you know, so, yeah, some in some municipalities, enough people still have landlines that... We, we heard, have it here? Well, in fact, we heard from... Uh, ooh, who was it? I don't want to get their name wrong. We heard from Eric, who is a postal employee, and said, just last weekend... He and his fellow mailman delivered the yellow pages to about 10% of addresses in his little town. Wow. And then the same day that that omnibus dropped. And I, I followed up with him. I wanted to know, is it 10% because... People have opted out? Yeah, or? is that 90% have opted out? Or you only delivered it to people who have landlines and that's who it is? Or does that just mean that... I don't, I don't know what his uh, town's story is. But apparently the USPS now delivers them, which... In the past, when everybody had to get these giant books, USPS did not want to be in that business, and usually there would be bespoke delivery trucks just doing phone book deliveries. Right. Um, it seems like a misuse of the post office, except uh, they're looking for any work they can get, right? They love junk mail now. There's work at the post office. They love Amazon and junk mail. It's keeping them in business. Uh, Neil, our friend Neil, when we talked about feats of strength involving a phone book, he thinks we should have name-checked uh, the bionic woman, because oh. that's the very, I think that's the first feat of strength that Lindsay Wagner pulls in the pilot of the bionic woman is to get people's attention by ripping a phone book in half. The kind of thing you could do on TV. Yeah, I uh, I learned after the episode that there's a technique to ripping the phone book in half. Yes, it was described to me that you have to first bend it bend, bend in, in the, the axis of the spine or yeah. something and then unbend it and then you can just go zick. Is that true? Yeah, I think I think you crack the spine somehow as you rip, and it'll rip right in half. But does that mean you're actually ripping it sideways? You're not ripping it across. You're not ripping each page in half, or you are. Yeah, you are. You oh. break the spine that way, and then rip as you're breaking it. So you pull it apart and rip it because you still have to rip every page. Yeah, but somehow pulling it da- pulling it across the the spine and ripping at the same time, it just 
it basically rips itself. I was shocked that there was a life hack for how to rip a phone book because I would have thought that that's impossible. Uh, Dylan, I believe, did I write this down wrong? Yes. We also talked about how phone books were useful for smashing bugs. Yes. That he sent us a picture of his grandma's more recent kill. Um, now that she doesn't have a phone book anymore, she kills spiders with a Bible. Oh, wait a minute. The Bible's... No, 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 no. Okay. She puts the Bible in a Ziploc first. Oh. And then hits the spider. Is that still compatible with Christianity? <laughs> yeah. Do, isn't and the Jesus, spider... And Jesus oh. said, when you use this uh, holy book for the things that creepeth upon the ground, placeth it in uh, a sheath. Aren't spiders one of God's creatures? I think so. I thought you were going to say that that his grandmother now kills armadillos with a phone book. <laughs> but the phone book's getting smaller, and the armadillos are maybe getting bigger? I think they probably are. Like the hogs, like the 30 to 50 feral 30 hogs. 30 to 50 feral armadillos. But, uh, but yeah, it's because of the nuclear test in Mississippi. Using a Bible. I mean, I could see if it's you— just, It's the fattest book she still has one of, I think, right. is the idea. I would think that you would go find the Bible of a sect that you— <laughs> Uh, that you thought were heretics. I think you're crediting modern American Christianity with more theological uh, uh, interest than they actually Yeah, have. maybe, I suppose. We got an interesting note on phone book recycling from Jim, who, who first laughs at me for not knowing what let your fingers do the walking meant. Oh, you didn't? Well, I just thought it was fun. Oh, look, my fingers are having a little trip. Oh, look, I'm turning the page. Now they're going to this page. Whereas the point is, you don't have to go do your errands on foot anymore. Your right. fingers, not your feet, are doing the walking. Yes, Jim, you're very smart. He says that phone books were typically printed on newsprint grade paper and were therefore treated for recycling terms as ONP. That's a category of old newsprint. And they, so that means they were often could be used in suction vat forming, which is when you take old newsprint pulp and make it a shape. In other words, egg cartons. Oh. Egg cartons for many years, if you saw a yellow one, that would have been because it was made from the yellow pages. How cool. I, that never would have occurred to me. That's a fascinating look at the past. Um, today, paper cartons and other kinds of you know uh, shipping protectors and stuff like that have to be made from other kinds of pulp just because there's so much less newsprint. Right. Not just phone books, but Neither newspapers. Neither newspapers nor phone books. I, I remember egg cartons that were yellow. And no one ever explained it. It would seem to me that if that was a thing, you would print it right on the egg carton, like, made from phone books. Plus all the little tiny, I mean, the giveaway was all the little tiny phone numbers right? all over the egg carton. Another listener named Mike, not the one previously name-checked, reports that he once saw a list of the most boring jobs, and number one was phone book proofreader. Whoa. Because I guess it's true, somebody, you know... You somebody could, has to you do You could get that. lawsuits if somebody bought an ad and then their phone phone number is printed wrong. Phone book proof. So somebody had to go through every name and every number and make sure it had, especially in the days before databases, that it had gotten out of the records okay. I want to be a lion tamer. And I think there's something wrong with me because I think that would be a very fun and rewarding job. Yeah, there is something wrong with you, but I don't know if it's if that's the evidence for it. Do you think that's actually a point in my favor? <sighs> Phone book proofreader. Let's see. No, I could see you hours a day. There's like a Sherlock Holmes story where a uh, a man is um, is made to just copy out the encyclopedia longhand, and it turns out it's because some was criminals. It Malcolm X. 
Yes, it's Malcolm X. <laughs> and that man, and that's the rest of the story. Uh, no, it is, a, but it is a redheaded man like Malcolm X. Uh, this is the famous uh, adventure of the Redheaded League. It turns out they just want this guy out of the house so they can use his basement to, um, to burrow into the Bank of England. And, and so they create this very fanciful explanation for, uh, uh, you know, an eccentric millionaire has said in his will that you should, because you have red hair, you should come in and copy the encyclopedia longhand and you'll be paid handsomely. And when I was a kid, I read that story and thought, I wish I could find a job where I just copy out the encyclopedia longhand. That seems like, like I'd pay them, you know? Right. As long as they paid you weekly instead of like, we're, it's a lump sum at the end. Because you <laughs> yeah, need mo- Once you finish the encyclopedia, <laughs> you get to Z. You'd want the money along the way. Keep uh, the lights on. And then uh, Thomas, uh, I don't know why this had never occurred to me. We were uh, discussing how one thing that killed off paper phone directories is just that um, a digital source for them can include things like more detailed information. It can include customer reviews. So it was like Yelp and Google reviews that killed off the phone book. And he pointed out a bit of the corporate history of Yelp, which I didn't know, which is that Yelp was actually named not because you were yelping your response to the, uh, to the dog walker you use, but because it's a, it's a contraction for yellow pages. Whoa. The yell would be yellow, the p okay. for pages. Oh, oh, I see. Now that you explain it. Um, <laughs> uh, wow. That never occurred to me, not a single time. Yellow pages. And I'm not sure they yellow. ever, I'm not sure that was ever part of their marketing. Like, Is it like Arby's used to stand for America's Roast Beef, Yes, Sir? Yeah, it never used to say theyellowpages.com. It's just that I think they were trying to convey something of the vibe of of an of a information directory and a commercial you know, look up bulletin board. And it sounds like help too. And it does sound like help. Yeah. Yellow pages plus help. Um, so thank you, Thomas, for pointing that out. Entry 308.JN1012. Certificate number 52363. Custer the Wolf. Saving the best story for last here. Uh, you were, um, by the way, I just finished. It, it, I was watching in parallel with the last few months uh, Ken Burns's The National Parks. Uh-huh. And even though it's not, not that many episodes long, I actually was constantly chasing omnibus topics. I, I saw the one about the Hetch Hetchy Reservoir a, a month or two after we had done that show. And then just last week after we had done the Custer Wolf show, I got to the entry about wolf reintroduction, Oh, uh, which is the last episode. And by the way, I cannot recommend more highly Ken Burns's the national parks. Did we acquit ourselves well uh, in, once you watch those episodes? Yeah, the Did- Hetch thing, the, the, it's the exact story. that. And in fact, there's an interesting um, footnote to you know the fact that everybody learned from the mistake of Hetch Hetchy. Do not flood a national park just because uh, a, a city's voters are for it. Um, actually, there were multiple times where that did not happen later because people could point at Hetch Hetchy and say, do not do this in the Smokies. Right. It's actually what led it's kind of what led to olympic national park uh, i'm pointing the wrong way what led to olympic national park oh, olympic national park yeah. being saved uh it was during the new deal era but it was you know a lot of lumber jobs were coming out of clear cutting all those forests and so the timber people actually brought fdr in hoping to um get him against a the national flooding. park there oh against the it, park. yeah it wasn't i mean they weren't gonna um they weren't gonna flood it but they were gonna not protect it Right, uh, and they so they 
stage managed all the stuff and made sure lumber trains went by his hotel. And they moved signs to make it look like all the clear cutting was happening not on um, Forest Service land. And in fact, FDR is like, oh, look at that ugly hill over there. I'm sure glad that's not government land. And they're all like, um, but in the end, like, you know, FDR is won over just by the beauties of the region and the trip backfires. And he's like, this has to be protected. Yeah. Good job, FDR. And a lot of it is just the cultural memory of like John Muir being betrayed when they flooded Hetch Hetchy. Well, it's the Pennsylvania station, Pennsylvania 65,000. In what ways at Pennsylvania 65,000? Well, Pen- Pennsylvania 65,000 apparently was the telephone number of the, the Pennsylvania Hotel, the Hotel Pennsylvania, which was across, kind of down the cross from Penn Station. Penn station? But they tore Penn do, Station do, down, do, 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 and that do, began, that kickstarted do, the historical do, preservation do, 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 movement do, do. Oh, interesting. around the country. Maybe, maybe if you didn't know that, maybe I should do that as an omnibus. That entry. could totally be an omnibus entry. Um. But anyway, I've been bored by many a Ken Burns documentary. Oh, I thought you were going to say many an Omnibus episode. I've been bored by many a John episode of Omnibus, but... (laughs) I thought you were going to say, I've been bored by many of my own episodes. (laughs) But the National Parks one hits the spot. Uh, But here's a great story about... So you told a story in that show about being at a, what, a a Yellowstone-adjacent wolf preserve, maybe? Or was... No, it was here in Washington State. It was was down by Tacoma or something, right? right? Tacoma, Washington, famous home of all the wolves. (laughs) Wolves actually are, you know, the Idaho populations of wolves actually have crossed the border. They, uh, a wolf was hit by a, a truck on the on Snoqualmie Pass, not, not that many winters ago. Wow, that's forty minutes from here. Yeah, they are, uh, they are moving in. However, your story about um, misguidedly running to the tour group and having the wolves immediately zero in on you uh, rang a bell for a listener named Carl who was a mechanical technician in the Canadian Navy. Sure. And got deployed to the High Arctic, uh, one of the northern listening stations up there. He, An area that Canada is constantly trying to remind the global community belongs to them. The Arctic. <laughs> Remember, all of these islands are ours. Someday Canada will have a warm water port and then look out. Uh, they, uh, he says nothing, you know, nothing exciting. He just worked in the kitchen as scullery. But, um, you know, on one of these Arctic bases, it's, um, it's pretty dull, but, you know, there was a trivia night once a week and there was darts once a week. And because oh. being Canadians, they had three, three nights a week were hockey. Hockey three times as important as trivia or darts. Right. Rightly so. Um, but Carl apparently is a bad Canadian, says he's not a huge fan of hockey or maple syrup for that matter. Mm. But he decided he was going to play this night. So he headed outside to the gym building. And you're always, when you leave the base, you're always supposed to go in pairs, carry an air horn, and have bear spray. He apparently had done none of these things. I want to point out that he is Canadian enough that one night a week he's like, yeah, I'll go play hockey. And I hate, he's good enough to play hockey. <laughs> I hate hockey. I only play once a week. <laughs> he's the least hockey-prone uh, person in he's Canada. Like, yeah, sure. I mean, I can play hockey. But as he leaves the base, the hairs on the back of his neck stand up. And he suddenly sees why he should have come in a group, carried an air horn, and brought the bear spray because he saw, and this is the most horrifying subordinate clause I've ever seen in my life, the pack of Arctic wolves, five or six of them that live underneath the station. So your, your station is up off the ground because it's you know permafrost, just like an Antarctic research station. But that creates a nice cozy little hole where wolves can den. So you have five or six wolves living under your station Ooh. when you're in the Canadian Navy. 
My first instinct was to run, but he still had 150 to 200 feet to go to the gym. And, you know, he didn't want to repeat your mistake. Don't run. So thanks to his military training, he says he was able to remain calm and realize that maybe if I don't run, I'm not prey. I'm just, I'm just, what's this guy? So I calmly turned back toward the gym and kept walking. He then lists some of the other harrowing experiences he's had in his military career. A helicopter crashed on the deck of his destroyer once. Um, the battery of his submarine had a short and caused a thermal event. Uh, so he's been a submariner, also on a destroyer, and at an Arctic research And center. he seems to be something of a Jonah. Yeah, <laughs> no, right. No matter where he goes, <laughs> disaster <laughs> Carl. Buddy, get out of the Navy. Uh, uh, but the day with the wolves was the most terrifying experience of his life. I managed to calmly walk to the gym, but anytime he stopped, they stopped. And when he started, they started. Ten feet away from the gym, somebody walked out of the gym and saw what was going on. And the guy hit the air horn and the bear spray. Uh, uh, well, the color just leaves the guy's face when he realizes what's happening. And with two people there, the wolves scattered. You know, sure. their their instinct is to pick off the weak. Which, by the way, is part of why it's so great to reintroduce them. It doesn't keep. It doesn't just keep the elk and caribou populations manageable. It actually produces better elk and caribou. Like they're healthier. Yeah, right. Because the, you know, they would kill off the blue the skin. Ba- elk. The bad ones get eaten. <laughs> nice, nice callback to uh, a show from two weeks, uh, two weeks in the future. Um, Carl tried to play it cool and was like, "Hey, am I late for hockey or whatever?" But then, but he says, in reality, he was shaken he, to his core. He was uh, the sweat was freezing on his brow. Because he had come face to face with his own mortality, the, the brute hand of nature. He had gazed into the abyss. Can you think of the scariest m- moment of your life? What's the scariest thing that ever happened to you? Well, it did not involve a pack of wolves living underneath my my house. Right. What's the most scared I've ever been? Scared. I mean, it's it's hard to re- you know at different ages your fears are different. Like when I was a kid, and. You know, I, I I broke a soup bowl and was afraid my parents would find out. Like, that's probably more fear than I've had in the last 10 years combined. Right. But as an adult, ooh, I had the steering on my... Something weird happened to the power steering of my car once at freeway speeds. Yeah. And I couldn't get it back, couldn't get it back, finally ended up overcorrecting, and it comes back. And I turned 90 degrees on the highway and, Yeeps. you know, squeal through three lanes of traffic before I get to the you know median. Don't hit the median. Just kind of pull over neatly in the center median. But ha- facing the wrong way? Facing the wrong way. Whoa. And, uh, you know, I, to this day, I, you know, trying to figure out what's wrong with the car, they're just like, yeah, that just happens sometimes. The bad drivers overcorrect. And I'm like, no, I swear the power steering cut out. Whoa. But that's pretty scary. That was pretty scary. You probably have a better one. Yeah, I mean I can't I can't tell which was the scariest one. You can't of, tell which of these things happened. Out of at, a four out of a list of forty. And which were hallucinated. But one of them did involve a pack of dogs. I was I was attacked by a pack of dogs, but I fought oh, them yeah. off. Yeah, and the, you were in the mean streets of suburban Bulgaria or something. Yeah, right? Romania. But uh but yeah, that was very scary. I was extremely scared. You got but the I most? don't know. There's a lot of scary times. I mean, when you're a parent, the scariest thing is something that could happen to your kid. But I can't really. I don't really have a good like. My kid almost fell into the Grand Canyon, or my kid almost yeah, walked in front of a semi. It's kind just of a that story. you go sit in their room at night and listen to them breathe and hope that they keep breathing, and you're just like, please keep breathing. But you're that's a low level of fear all the time. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, I don't think I ever had any particular, knock on wood, anything particular. Well, maybe maybe something scarier lies in, uh, in store for us. You never had a thing where the plane was coming in for a landing and the, the lightning storm and then there was a creature on the wing throwing parts into the engine? I've never been scared on a plane. My dad has some story of flying into either Hanoi, probably into Hanoi. It was right before, I think it was right before Clinton had opened it up, but he was allowed because he was with some exploratory thing. He was like a, he was a, he was working for Oracle at the time. And I, I'm not going to tell this right, but suddenly right as they're about to land, they abort the landing and just head right back up. And he was like, well, that's scary. He gets to the terminal and some guy's like, wait, are you on that flight that just came in from, from whatever? My dad was like, yeah. And he was like, they were coming in wheels down. Like the, the guy had not. Um, wheels up. Sorry, wheels up. Yeah, the guy had not put the landing gear out. Wow. And realized like at the last possible moment. That the lever was in the wrong position. Oops. Wow. So don't fly whatever regional airline that was, I guess. You know, I go on a, on a motorcycle trip every year uh, with a group of guys my age who are all good at motorcycling. And I'm bad at motorcycling. Uh, or at least not great at it. And I'm constantly as afraid as I've ever been for an entire week, even when I'm sitting around the campfire. Is it possible this is not the right hobby for you? <sighs> I'm not sure. I'm just, uh, you know, so many things have happened in my life as a result of saying yes to everything that I'm not <laughs> sure that maybe that isn't my pathology. This is like a Jim Carrey movie where you decide to get your life in order by just saying no to things. Yeah, right. If I started saying no... I don't know what would happen, Ken. Maybe <laughs> is am I at an age now where saying no is where I get the new opportunities? I mean, I did start saying no to gigs that paid less than a certain amount. And earlier you started saying no to a lot of substances. Right? I don't know if that's the same. No, I think it is. I think saying the same no, impulse? No to 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 doing certain kinds of bad things. But yeah, no, no. What if what if somebody said, "Hey, go on this long motorcycle trip with us and be constantly terrified?" And I was like, "No." What what would what how would that make my life better? Maybe. I I don't like being terrified actually. Maybe being scared all the time is is not, but everything I've ever done has made me scared all the time. But not motorcycle level terrified. You're not like Richard Pryor in the kitchen when you're trying to make dinner. <laughs> 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 No, but like going on, doing shows and stuff, it's always kind of scary. Stage fright? Maybe not, but like, you know, I did, I went on a show one time that was, that had three members of Kids in the Hall on it. And I'm like. (laughs) You're scared of Canadians. I'm like, and me. They were all super nice though. Very sweet. That's what everyone says about them. Like. I mean, it's it's the it's the question of which is the dominant gene and which is the recessive gene because Canadians are all lovely and comedians are all monsters, right? And if you put them together, you get a comedian or a Canadian. I think that they and it turns out they're nice. I think it's very clear that they're all monsters, but they're monsters who were supremely nice. <laughs> so I thought I was going to get just uh, just destroyed, and in fact, I was celebrated. They're also five foot four. Yeah, if your greatest fear is. Um, diminutive gay Canadian men, you're probably going to go, be, you're going to be okay. But then, it, yeah, it turns out they're super sweet. And also, clearly, monsters. And now, for the rest of the story. Ken, how is Esowet? 
I am relieved to announce. I feel like this is a shareholders meeting. Mm-hmm. Essowit has never been in better health. There's, oh, hooray. There has never been a better time to be a shareholder in Essowit. And everybody clinks their raspberry, raspberry. Oh, I just spilled water on your table with my uh, pantomime. Fortunately, we have the uh, the soft padding of the <laughs> gamer surface. Is that good, though? Is the, ga- the gamer surface does seem water-resistant. It's water-resistant. It's beating up. I don't know what gamers... I don't want to know what gamers would do where this would be a feature. Yeah, right. Water resistance. Yeah, what's or, going on? Yeah. What kind of fluids are you getting on your tables, gamers? Um, so Essowit is thriving. Now, there have been times in recent weeks where uh, I've been kind of worried about Essowit's position there. You did not have to. As recently as the week of Thanksgiving, um, Bondeni and Essowit, they're the, kind of the bad boys. They had their own plan not following the others who were in search of luscious new leaves after a rainy, I guess, is it the rainy season in Kenya? Um, lots of new growth, but Bondeni and Essowit go in the opposite direction from the guys looking for the leaves. And when the keepers whistle at them, they ignore their instruction and keep going. Whoa, what are they looking for? Well, they're waiting for, I don't know, I don't know what's going on. Maybe they think there's better leaves in the other direction. But luckily, they are not the alphas in the herd. Naleku trumpeted and whistled at the two naughty boys. <laughs> so elephants can trumpet, but did you know they could whistle? Hmm. No. I guess... I watched a. Anyone can whistle. I watched a, a gif the elephant. other day. You mean a gif? A gif of an elephant who was interacting with some what seemed to be high school age or college age girls who were there, like you know, happy to interact with this elephant. And one of them lifted up her phone and was taking video of it, and the elephant hit her in the face with it uh, with their trunk so hard that it like I mean it was a serious like. Whack. That girl knocked is, her down. The girl is now dead. Well, he doesn't like phones, I guess. Well, or just felt like it was rude. Like You really should ask permission. Yeah, look me in the eye when you're talking to me. Don't just look at your phone. So I, I didn't know they could whistle, but I do know that they can savage somebody. Well, Naleku's trumpeting and whistling worked. The two naughty boys obeyed her, turning around and walking back to join the herd. They had received her message loud and clear. Mm-hmm. Then they began their playful sparring game. When Rojo walked over in the hopes of joining in, they did not want to include him. They just move over to a different part and leave him standing there. It's not that different from kids yeah. anywhere. In retaliation, Rojo ran after them and knocked down Essowit, who trumpeted in dismay and anger. In response, Bondeni and Naleku charged off in different directions, leaving Essowit disgruntled in a heap. This uh, narrative is saying a lot about the human being who's watching all of this. Because there's a, a lot of motive attributed to. Do you feel like we're seeing, we're seeing more about the writer's childhood than we are about Essowitz? <laughs> well, maybe, but I mean, for for Essowitz to to show both, uh, like to be indignant and also disgruntled, it feels like this, the writer knows a lot about Essowitz. Uh, at another occasion, um, Essowitz is ignoring. Not that Essowitz a bigger boy when the little orphans are complaining about wanting more milk or whatever. Um, Essowit just ignores them and rubs his tummy energetically on the wall. See, he's got a good life. Yeah. Here he is a couple of weeks ago relaxing in a mud bath. Um, Sounds like me. Enjoying the, exactly. Rubbing your belly against a wall and totally relaxing me. in a mud bath. You're kind of the, uh, the Essowit of Homo sapiens. Uh, and this is a story about Essowit that we heard from David, um, who works for Microsoft. They recently had a trivia themed 
morale event. So he had a trivia team at a, at a work thing he had to go to. Hmm, seems um, unlikely that Microsoft would sponsor a trivia event at a team building <laughs> exercise. So maybe at a hotel in the nearby mountains. Apparently, they have a few. Apparently, they have a few employees who enjoy trivia. Weird, but his David's team actually won two hundred and fifty dollars. All right, and he was the you can tell the omnibus listener, of course, would have been the all star on the team, right? And since he was by universal consent the team MVP, they said, "Where do you want to donate the two hundred and fifty dollars?" And he um, said, "The Patreon account of Omnibus Project." <laughs> Uh, they couldn't do it. They couldn't go in on anything nearby because they're, they come from all over. So he came up with the idea for picking a charity that was, would be near none of them. In, uh, in other words, the elephants at the Sheldrick Wildlife Trust. Hooray. The addenda show has inspired him to give to the elephants there. So they, they each adopt, they each put $50 onto one elephant, not Essowit. And now everyone on the team can keep up with the, the monthly updates on what their calves are up to. Oh, when you said put $50 on them, I thought it was like, yeah, like a something like, which one survives the <laughs> monsoon? Which one will survive the mud bath today? No, uh, everyone is well taken care of at the Sheldrick Wildlife Trust. They're all in good health, and all the sparring between Bondeni and Esuit is in good fun. It says they play pushing games, and they play hide-and-seek. Now, I have a question. Can elephants really play hide-and-seek? Of all the animal kingdom... They're uniquely ill-suited to hide and seek. Oh, I see what you're saying. Well, but it kind of depends. Like, we would be really bad at hide and seek if we were playing with a, with a species or judged by a species that had, um, had like, the ability to detect heat. Like Predator? Like Predator. The whole Predator movies are based on your, the premise you just came up with. What yeah. if I was playing hide-and-seek with somebody with heat vision? So we think of elephants as being big and hard to hide, but elephants are not famous for their eyesight. Right. Here's the point. If elephants were both large and good at seeking, this would be a bad game. But the fact that they're terrible at hiding and terrible at seeking really levels the playing yeah, field. Yeah, it makes the game just as exciting as it would be for us. Makes perfect sense. And that concludes Omnibus Addenda, Volume 38. Futurelings, we thank you for your financial pledges that have made this monumental project possible. We hope that access to these important addenda items has validated your decision to support the Omnibus. It is vitally important that you attach these updates to the original recordings you discovered in their proper context for the convenience of future browsing by your civilization. We hope that our civilization survives long enough for us to provide you with future addenda to the omnibus.